Welcome to the QNS podcast. Well, actually, we are Queen's Week now. It's the same show, a new name though, and I'm still Jacob K. as far as I know. I've been inside for quite a while. This week, we have a conversation with Zoran Mamdani, a candidate for state assembly challenging Aravella Samotas in Assembly District 36 in Western Queens. Mamdani tells us a little about himself, his policies, but we also talk a lot about DSA. That's the Democratic Socialists of America, an organization that's made its political organizing presence felt certainly here in Queens, but nationally as well. Mamdani, who is a member, has gotten the endorsement of the Queens chapter of the DSA. That's a big deal. Not many people get their endorsement. So we talked to him a little bit about that, the progressive movement in Queens, and how he and his campaign have been holding up during the COVID-19 crisis. So let's just get into it. Here's our conversation with Zoran Mamdani. Hey, Zoran, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks so much for having me here today, Jacob. Just to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, so my name is Zoran Kwame Mamdani. I was born and raised in Kampala, Uganda, in East Africa. I immigrated to New York City with my family at the age of seven, and I got my citizenship two years ago. I work as a foreclosure prevention housing counselor at an organization called Chaya CDC. I work with low to moderate income immigrant families across Queens who are facing the specter of foreclosure and uh, being evicted from their longtime family homes. And why did you decide to run for office? The, the quick answer of why I decided to run is because a good friend of mine, a fellow organizer on the Tiffany Caban campaign asked me to run. And that's what prompted me to think about this late last year. The, you know, just because someone asks you to do something doesn't mean you do it, though. So the, the reason that I that I decided to follow through with that was because I love the work that I do as a foreclosure prevention housing counselor. But, you know, at my best, I can stop maybe one foreclosure a month, a couple months. It's a long, long process. And the banks, it's in their incentive to make you run around for as long as possible. And basically what my job is to um, try and put people's lives back together after they've been broken apart into a million pieces. And the potential of legislation and of being a legislator is to ensure that people's lives never get broken in the first place. Because what I would see again and again is, you know, a history of Albany abdicating its role in controlling and fighting back the ever-increasing power of financial speculation and real estate investment portfolios. When I started my job, I would be told again and again by counselors who had been doing the work for far longer about the ways in which the state used to assist homeowners in need, the kinds of funds that were available. And then by the end, before I took leave of absence, I was having to refer clients to GoFundMes. And seeing that transformation really pointed me in the direction of the need for legislators who, one, would never take a dollar from these real estate developers, and two, would create, pass, agitate, and organize for policy that would fundamentally decouple housing from the market. Can you talk us through some of your policies, both within housing policy and beyond? Yeah, so I think it, within housing, the number one policy issue for me would be good cause eviction. Good cause eviction is something that I'm very passionate about because, you know, I work with low and moderate income homeowners. I'm also a tenant. And the reason I bring that up is typically in housing policy, you're either kind of categorized as one or the other, right? You're pro-tenant, you're pro-homeowner. And it's a very simplistic binary because what it does is it erases the actual major cause of a lot of this housing crisis here in New York City. And that's large-scale financial capital, speculative investments, those kinds of things. Good cause eviction is something that is so important because it showcases that the fight that we have on our hands is not the, you know, 
small homeowner owns a two-family house and the second unit is paying for his mortgage versus a tenant, it's large-scale corporate landlords. It's, you know, speculative capital that comes into neighborhoods, buys properties, flips them within the same year that um, really hollows out the character of, of our communities. And what good cause eviction does as a, as a piece of legislation is it provides a framework for universal rent control and it would provide tenant protections for market rate tenants because basically about half of Queens tenants live in market rate units. They do not have the protections of knowing A, that they will get a lease renewal offer from their landlord if they've been paying their rent every month, that B, there will be certain guidelines as to how much of an increase the landlord can put on their rent. And what this would do is, is deal with both of those things and ensure that if you're gonna be evicted from, from your apartment, which is in effect also what it means to not get a lease renewal, there's going to be good cause for that. And it ties rent increases to an inflation index, so it would be around 3.3%. And the reason this ties back to the homeowner issue is because this legislation has a carve-out for homeowners who live in their residence and have one to three units. And so that explicitly does not, that explicitly removes these homeowners who I work with from this kind of framework. And I think that's so important because it showcases the different kinds of people who own property. You own property to live in it, you own property to profit from it. That is that is a very important thing for me. I think there's additional um, housing policy that I'm very passionate about, whether it's you know, housing is a means to raise additional revenue for the budget, like a pied-à-terre tax, uh, where you tax, you know, somebody's second property that is not their primary residence that is worth more than $5 million, um, which would not apply to very many, many people, but it's apparently still controversial. Um, instituting things like a flip tax, which would levy a 15% tax on a property bought and sold within the same year, with the exception of transfers within the family. And then in addition to housing, you know, before I actually go beyond housing, just to kind of make it clear that the long-term goal here is that the market is not what determines whether or not someone can live uh, and have a place to live. And the short-term goal is creating guidelines for universal rent control and things like that along those lines and, and supporting our existing public housing uh, because our public housing is crumbling and it's no surprise as to why because it's been mismanaged and underfunded. Um, and what we need to do is increase that funding by, by an extreme amount so that we can provide for New Yorkers who every year are being left out in the cold and unable to even have working gas in their, in their homes in a working elevator. In addition to housing, the, kind of the, the, the two additional flagship issues for our campaign and for me are uh, criminal justice and, and public power. So I was an organizer on Tiffany Caban's campaign. I uh, was on the Queens DSA side working on that campaign from about December uh, up until I'd say about July. And criminal justice is something that is very important to me and to all of us who have mobilized for this campaign. We want to end cash bail. We want to decriminalize sex work, which is a point of difference between myself and my opponent. Um, we want to ensure that every person can vote whether or not they're incarcerated or on parole. And you know, we want to take these stances because we have Rikers Island just a couple miles north, you know, in the same community board district as, as Astoria. And we have a responsibility to learn from the horrific history of that island and of jails and prisons across the city and state. And so th that is a major priority for us. Uh, in addition to that, public power. You know, Astoria is the number one energy producing district in the state. And coupled with Long Island City, we're looking at a production of about 50% of New York City's energy. 
And, you know, we've had a story of Borealis. We've had uh, power plant shutdowns before. And it's it's truly a legacy of the bankrupt and broken method of uh, energy production that relies almost solely on dirty, dirty production. And what we need to do is, one, transition immediately to renewable energy production, and two, to ensure that the distributors of this energy are not Con Ed and National Grid because there's no need for a corporate middleman. My opponent and I you will consistently hear that, oh, there's there might not be difference in, in a bill like this. I think the important thing is that you may have somebody who co-sponsors the same kind of legislation that I'm discussing, but in order for these things to become real, you need to organize around them. You need to create a larger collective. It cannot just be like a principled one person putting their name on it to showcase that they approve of something. We need to actually get these things done. And I think that that kind of agitation and organizing is necessary. And I think also explaining why public power is right it links back to a fundamental belief in democratic socialism, where the state provides whatever is necessary for dignity. We don't want to be going one issue by one issue each time, checking the political calculus before developing any political convictions. So I think for a lot of listeners, DSA is kind of this nebulous organization, and people who aren't members don't really understand what it's all about. So can you just tell us a little bit about DSA? DSA is my political organizing home, and it has been for some time now. I think that one of the most commonly misunderstood things about DSA is there's this understanding of DSA as some kind of professional apparatus, right? We are professional in the sense of the work that we do, but not in the sense of the way that we are compensated. This is an all-volunteer organization comprised of people who put in time outside of their work hours. And as a result of that, we have an infinite number of additional constraints that do not impact parties which are able to be staffed and, you know, things along those lines. When I'm saying DSA, I'm talking about New York City DSA, um, not, not the national organization which does have staff, but the, the local chapters, um, which is basically what people are talking about here in, in New York City and New York State when, when they refer to DSA. So basically, in New York City, we have a couple of branches of DSA. We have a branch for Queens, Queens DSA, which I am a member of. We have uh, Bronx and Upper Manhattan DSA. We have Lower Manhattan DSA. And then we have... Uh, three Brooklyn branches, Central Brooklyn, South Brooklyn, North Brooklyn, and then we also have a Staten Island DSA. And these branches are, you know, obviously there's geographic reasons, but there's also membership numbers. So for example, Brooklyn has three different branches because there's such a massive amount of members in Brooklyn. Um, ideally, there will continue to be smaller and smaller geographic stretches for each branch as we grow the membership of the organization. The thing that DSA is so exciting about DSA is it is a place where people who are both unsatisfied with the world as we have it and certain that we deserve better than this can come together to both understand, you know, a political ideology that many of us have not been afforded the opportunity to become familiar with prior to this. Many of us obviously have and come into this with a lot of knowledge of theory and things along those lines. But for a lot of people, this is their first interaction with socialism. And that interaction typically comes about in the form of electoral work. Now, specifying electoral, I just should just make clear. You join, you join a branch in DSA, you have a branch meeting once a month. Everybody in the branch comes together. Then, in addition to the branch meeting, there are different working groups. So let's say your issue is you want to organize around healthcare, Medicare for all. You want to do organizing around that. There, there are healthcare working groups. There are anti-war working groups. There are political theory working groups. There's a dual power working group for people who want to create power inside the state and outside the state. 
there are all these different working groups, and then there's also an electoral working group. And the reason I bring this up is a lot of times when people say DSA, they think immediately of elections, of, of you know, the impact we've been having across um, the local political sphere. I think it's important to, to make it clear that there are many people in DSA who do not engage in electoral work. And then there are obviously those of us, as, you know, as you're speaking to me right now and others who participate in this campaign who do that. But we are brought together by a common belief in the need and the necessity for democratic socialism. And then we all work in the different groups where, of the issues that we're most passionate about. What is so exciting from a local political standpoint is that DSA is an institution which will also which also has institutional knowledge. So typically, let's say you run a successful political campaign, you win. Typically, the, you know the candidate gets into office. Maybe they take a couple of staffers with them. It's like the knowledge of that campaign evaporates and it's not passed on to anyone because immediately those people who were successful in that sphere go on to a different sphere. And in order to continue to get that knowledge for future campaigns, you typically hire consultants who exploit the fact that you know nothing else about this world and they charge whatever they charge and you rely on them. And the beauty of DSA is that we're able to build a long-term left strategy where we can develop candidates from within the organization, work with candidates outside of the organization as well, who are like-minded and build on our successes and failures from past years. Why do you think that Queens has become a sort of hotspot for the progressive movement? I mean, I think that there are different kind of things that come together, different political moments that come together. So, I mean, p- part of it, you know, I think is just like, you know, we had, we had the Ocasio election, then we had the Caban election, and, you know, we've had the same organization that can take its work from one and to bring it into the other. I think that there is a real vacuum for sustained electoral organizing by an organization that is going to continue to be active year after year in Queens. Um, But also, frankly, across New York City, I think what makes DSA uniquely impactful is the ability to get so many people involved that otherwise wouldn't be. And when we talk about why is Queens the the hub of progressive activity in in our city, in our state, maybe even our country, I think it also speaks to the absolute failures of the Queens County Democratic Party, right? There's so much activity to be had because there are so many terrible electeds to hold to account. And and so there are all these different opportunities, you know, like I'm not the person who made it such that if I win, I would be the first South Asian elected official in New York City. Right. That is a legacy of a establishment that has refused to include voices from communities that they've pushed out of the conversation entirely. Right. So because you do things like that and you have a history of not bringing in certain communities, it allows for there to be opportunities to challenge these establishments and to do so in a way that speaks to class based and race based marginalization. And so I think, you know, in some ways it's because we have we have this organization, all these people are excited. And there's so many other organizations as well that work um, in Queens that I don't think I personally don't see. Um, at the scale of DSA in terms of ability across boroughs to participate in local elections, but it would be remiss to think that DSA is the one and only entity that is challenging establishment politics um, in an electoral fashion. But it is, it all leads to this kind of a moment where we have a real opportunity right now to take back power from incumbents and institutions which have profited from the inability of people to get involved 
in these kinds of processes. And how have you been holding up during the COVID-19 crisis? It's been, it's been difficult as it has for, for, for so many. Um, but thankfully, the, you know, I'm very thankful that I can count that, you know, my family's health is largely in good measure. I have, I do have an aunt who's been in the, been in the ICU for more than four weeks now. Um, and so that is, that has been tough, not knowing any sense of, um, when she will be able to get out of the ICU and not being able to see her and things like that. But, you know, thankfully my, my parents are well, the rest of my family as well. As a campaign, it's been, it's been an altogether, you know, entirely new world. You know, I've worked on local campaigns before, and this is something I've obviously just have never experienced. And to be a campaign in this moment is to um, face some of the struggles of a small business in the sense that, you know, you fundraise to be able to finance your operations. When you have an office lease, it's for a short period of time, and so you're, you have to pay all your money up front. And so we did that, and we had an office that, that we all loved, and we got to use it for three weeks out of the four-and-a-half-month license that we signed, and now that office is gone. Um, cannot be used. You know, 2,000 square feet on Steinway, um, just closed, sitting. But I think more importantly as a campaign, it presents the challenge that you need to meet to explain to people that this pandemic may be out of our hands in the sense of, you know, its existence, but the response to it is an entirely political one. In a moment such as this, this kind of pressure that, you know, this is no time for politics, but every aspect of the response to this pandemic is political, right? Whether or not we cut taxes, whether or not we cut spending or raise revenue, whether or not we, you know, cut billions of dollars from New York State healthcare spending, whether or not we leave people to die in our prisons and jails, whether or not we cancel rent so people can stay in their homes. Um, all of these kinds of things are not in any way impacted by the virus itself. It's a political response to that pandemic. And I think it has made all the more urgent the crises that already existed that that we were running to address, right? We were running to address housing, criminal justice, and public power. And we're telling people to stay in their homes and wash their hands. And how can someone stay in their home if their rent continues without any income? How can they stay in their home if they're still being locked up for cash bail? How can they wash their hands if their utilities are being shut off because of lack of payment? Right. So I think it kind of showcases the need for the state to provide whatever is necessary to live a dignified life because we are passing off as individual behavior requirements for people, wash your hands, stay home, when really those are structural responsibilities of the state that have to be carried out by the state because uh, it is not up to an individual whether or not they can do those things if they don't have any money in their pocket to pay for them. And we have to ensure that that's never a part of the equation when making these decisions for people. And I think that it just, it also showcases that, you know, that we are going to be in the fight of our lives in the city and in the state um, in the next few years to to respond to this pandemic and be able to ensure that working people across this borough, city, state are not erased from the existence of the place that we call home. And we are up against a governor who has embraced austerity from his time in office and continues to do so. And we need to have elected officials who have never stood with Cuomo, would never stand with Cuomo, and not because of a personal vendetta, but because of a difference in political ideology and an understanding of how we provide for working people. And we, we need to have people who are willing to name the opponents 
the creators of these obstacles and fight against them. Uh, because it's not enough to cast you know, a singular vote or co-sponsor the right bill. We need to ensure the passage of this legislation and the creation of an organized collective that stands against an executive such as Governor Cuomo and the legislatures that are controlled by Carl Hasty as well. Thanks so much for talking to us. You're very welcome. And that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with the second official episode of Queen's Week. This episode was produced, hosted from within a closet, edited and mixed by me, Jacob Kay. Angelica Acevedo is my co-host when we aren't in quarantine. Our reporters include Jenna Bacall, Carlotta Muhammad, and Bill Perry. Our editor is Zach Gowelb. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Published by Schneps Media. Stay healthy and see you soon. Mm-hmm.